Hello and welcome to the BNP Paribas Markets 360 podcast. We cover the topics that matter from the global economy to market strategy. Hello, I'm Trevor Allen, Head of Sustainability Research for Markets 360 here at BNP Paribas. Today I'm joined by Sumati Semavoy-Jain, Sustainability Research Analyst on my team. It's Thursday morning here in London on the 8th of December 2022. Today, we want to come back on the theme of biodiversity as a follow-up from our October 17th podcast. COP15, the dedicated UN Summit on Biodiversity, has kicked off in Montreal and will go on until the 19th of December. After policymakers failed to achieve the 2020 target set at the Aichi meetings back in 2011, COP15 presents a moment to retune and set new, ambitious, yet concrete common goals for this decade. But even if COP15 will likely remain at the target-setting level, we have no doubts that biodiversity will continue to gain in popularity as an investment theme. Indeed, policy is one among three catalysts that we see. The other two drivers are transparency, i.e. better data and disclosures will push corporates to reduce negative pressures on nature. And finally, innovation. Commercial opportunities for corporates are emerging, such as reforming waste from a cost into an asset by focusing on developing circular economy practices. Investment flourishes at the cross-section of these three. And last time we spoke about the equity market, so now we turn to the fixed income market. But first things first, let's start on the policy side. Sumati, what has been the lead up to COP15? What have we seen so far? And do we have any momentum to leverage from COP27? Yes, actually. At COP27, we saw a clear shift in language with the realization that we cannot tackle climate change at the expense of nature. The final text stipulates that reversing biodiversity loss is vital to ensure climate efforts are effective and sustainable. Indeed, it's no surprise to us that nature has a big role to play in regulating the climate or acting as carbon sink. Encouragingly, there was greater emphasis on the role of nature-based solutions, but dedicated finance is running today at only one-third of the level needed to limit climate change below 1.5 degrees and reverse biodiversity loss. The private sector will be key to scale nature-based solution funding, with contributions around 17% for now. Even in the push to scale renewable energy generation, there is progress to look to also minimize disruption to nature, such as by building reefs on offshore wind turbines to help local marine ecosystems. Besides, importantly, the final doc urges for the sustainable use of nature and ecosystems rather than just protecting, conserving, and restoring. For us, this really calls for mobilization of a wider set of stakeholders beyond just governments. Naturally, supply chains come under scrutiny. For example, the EU passed in law on Tuesday the ban on products whose commodities are linked to the destruction or degradation of forests. This will be positive for corporates that are ahead of the game, that have taken the steps to already think about providing that level of transparency of how natural resources flow through their value chains, so how they source, monitor, manage, and recycle them. Nature-intensive sectors, such as food and agriculture, were finally discussed as well, 
with a dedicated pavilion for food and agriculture for the first time and key for methane emissions as well. Thus, while numerous challenges persist, we feel the momentum gained so far will drive slow but incremental change at COP15 and in the coming decade, really missing from the IGE meetings in 2011. Trevor, what would you qualify as success at COP15? The general hope is that COP15 will deliver a Paris moment, i.e. setting global goals that will drive national policies and provide a common language. What's clear to us is that we will remain at the target setting level with the next few years really being about implementation. Nonetheless, what can be done is agreeing on the toolkit required to preserve nature and understanding our roles in achieving them. A framework that holds countries accountable is key and this means it will need some key concrete steps including qualified targets. One success factor would be some cooperation between DM and EM countries and the mechanisms on how to really target biodiversity investment as most of the biodiversity hotspots are really in EM countries. But DM countries really need to show they are going to be credible partners here. The other key point to keep in mind is that we are soon entering 2023 and those goals that will be set are really for 2030. That's 7 years away. This means success is reliant on targets translating into national policy. So in summary, success will be if the framework provides not only ambitious but holistic, concrete and fair action. And what's different from 10 years ago is really that science is pointing to the urgency of action. and corporates are a lot more vocal and innovative around what they can contribute to this. Sumati though, which areas do you think are at risk from the current draft framework at COP15? The first distinction that will need to be made clear is conserving land and seas versus sustainable use of land and seas. On the former, conservation should be defined and clearly exclude areas already under sustainable use to achieve the ambition needed. Besides, key biodiversity areas should be seen as a priority over other areas to avoid inflating countries' conservation numbers at the expense of well-connected area of conservation. Enforceability will be crucial too, especially with oceans and preventing overfishing. On sustainable use, an example is a guidance concerning harmful chemicals at risk of being watered down given food security concerns and the high living costs. but adding a goal regarding the share of organic land could indirectly push for reducing the use of harmful chemicals in higher income countries on this farmers will need financial and technological support to upskill beyond government support food companies have a role to play through greater engagement with their supply chains and increasing plant-based products companies that provide solutions to sectors exerting harm on nature which we really label enablers will also be key for this sustainable use broad goal for example biotechnological companies are developing solutions for fixing nitrogen to the roots of the crops without the need of synthetic chemicals it will improve crops resiliency and also it will help them be more independent of fossil fuels Now the elephant in the room will really be about closing the investment gap and how to channel enough funds to emerging markets. 
The draft、uh, framework calls for cutting harmful policy incentive by at least half a trillion a year dollars, equivalent to two thirds of the annual investment gap. It will likely receive pushback from affected parties, however, within the forest, land, and agriculture sectors. Moreover, biodiversity credit markets, which may reward conservation efforts, are likely to take time to develop. Appropriate valuation techniques are still needed. Measuring the opportunity cost to landowners to set the right price will prove challenging. And really, on that, we expect forest conservation markets to develop faster than those of farmland, given the latter's complexity. And here, there's another $200 billion shortfall to close the $700 billion gap. And emerging markets will require a large level of that financing to protect their natural wealth. Yes, indeed. But we see limited scope for breakthroughs. Rather, innovation is likely the way forward. For example, The Nature Conservancy structured debt for nature swaps for the Seychelles, Belize, and Barbados, allowing those countries to free up essential capital for their conservation efforts without issuing more debt. Multinational development banks can also be useful vehicles for de risking and crowding in private investors. I think that an area that will gather attention and likely to reach some success is the treatment of waste. 90%, 90%. Of NDCs lack targets for waste reduction. The concept of the circular economy specifically addresses conversion of waste into a resource, reducing costs, and adding a new revenue stream. Greater policy focus and access to cheap capital could help companies to scale these projects into profitable business activities more rapidly. And it's a win win for tackling the food crisis, too. One third of food is wasted globally. In contrast, an area likely to be completely left out are the 60% of our oceans falling beyond national borders, i.e., the high seas. Only 1.2% of high seas are currently protected. But with the UN Treaty on High Seas failing to reach a consensus again this year, we don't see high seas making it to the COP15 discussions, unfortunately. This could be raised and leveraged by island nations, however. Sumati, do you see the outcome from COP15 as having a significant weight into determining whether biodiversity will or will not be a growing theme amongst investors? No, actually, we don't see it slowing down investments and buy ins to the biodiversity theme either way. As you mentioned earlier, there are other key drivers, such as improvements in data with the wider adoption of land surveying tools, for example. But also disclosure frameworks under development, leveraging on the experience gained in the climate space, and really exciting innovations such as cultivated meats and vertical farms, providing corporates an opportunity to enter new fast growing markets due to benefit from continuous tech advances. Nonetheless, a successful COP15 would send, would send a much needed signal to the world. That policymakers are shifting and that a fundamental transformation is on the way. Speaking of which, you mentioned at the beginning that we would discuss the fixed income market in terms of biodiversity opportunities. Would you like to give us your thoughts on this? In credit, ESG thematic and impact funds remain skewed towards companies dealing with climate change or that are broadly considered environmentally friendly. 
adding a biodiversity angle would help diversify portfolios and position early for when the EU taxonomy is expanded in 2023. It would also help increase exposure to a growing but so far neglected area of sustainability investment. And finally, biodiversity cannot be offset as easily as carbon, so allocating to enablers and leaders can create more direct impact. Another opportunity is that biodiversity calls for a slightly different type of selection process, one based on the bond issuer's business model and commitments rather than just the use of proceeds. Thus, investors could diversify away from only green bonds and start to include more sustainability-linked bonds that are an interesting tool. Here, we expect a greater number of KPIs linked to biodiversity over time for corporates and SSA. Credit portfolios would definitely welcome such exposure, which would contribute to diversifying away from financials and utilities. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be closely watching COP15, and we will be, be we will be back in the new year for a debrief. With that, we wish you a great holiday season ahead. Thank you. This communication does not constitute research, a recommendation, or any form of advice from BMP Paribas or its affiliates. It does not consider your financial circumstances or objectives, and it may not be suitable for you. It should not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part.